I'm Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, here with a Slate spoiler special podcast on Booksmart, the new comedy and directorial debut, feature directorial debut of Olivia Wilde. Speaking with me here in the Slate studio in New York is Jeffrey Bloomer, senior editor at Slate. Hey, Jeff. Hi, Dana. And from D.C., we have Christina Cotarucci, a staff writer at Slate. Hi, Christina. Hi, guys. So, okay, Booksmart. There's lots to say. I'm going to do my usual thing and just go around the table and have you each give a quick thumbnail reaction so people know whether to frame your response to the whole movie as, you know, see it or don't see it. So I'll start with you, Jeffrey. Uh, I thought it was quite good. Uh, And I say that as sort of a a qualified way of... I had heard quite a bit about this movie, and I'm a giant sucker for coming-of-age movies in general, especially, like, brainy, sentimental ones. And then you throw in the gay kids, and it's, like, almost over for me from the beginning. And I thought that this movie (laughs) was lovely, but also surprisingly conventional and um, kind of shaggy in a way I didn't expect, which I think is fine. uh, But that's sort of where my baseline is. Yeah, there was so much rapture coming out of Sundance about this. You know, I think if there was one, you know, every every festival comes out with its one overhyped movie. And mm-hmm. I feel like this was maybe it for the last Sundance. But overhyped sounds cynical and mean. I, mean, I just I just mean that it was described as a sort of breakthrough in a way that I agree it didn't quite achieve. Um, what about you, Christina? I definitely land on the see it side. I thought it was a very good use of, you know, two hours of my time. I enjoyed it a lot. I I would put it somewhere between groundbreaking and non-groundbreaking. I would say it was like ground skimming. Um, <laughs> Lightly and, plowing a furrow in the ground. Yeah. It was like a, a light tilling of the soil of coming-of-age movies. Yeah, I had some, some particular gripes about it, which we'll get into, but um, definitely a fan of the movie. I think anyone who likes movies about high school and coming-of-age and or queer things will like it. Yeah, I was in the midst of writing my review, and I had to break it off and run in here to talk to you two. And the first adjective mentioned in my review is buoyant. That's what comes to mind mm-hmm. when I think of this movie. You know, there's just something bubbly and light about it, which I guess could be part of, we'll get to this, maybe what you know one might also critique about it, that it doesn't maybe dig as deep as it could about some of the issues that it raises. But um, but it leaves you walking out with a bounce in your step, which is a really great thing for an early summer comedy to do. I agree. So let's do a quick setup of who... We get to know at the beginning of this movie the two girls whose friendship forms the um, the crux of the movie and whose journey the movie ends up being about. Uh, yes. So we have Molly uh, and Amy, and they seem to be two, uh, again, very brainy, smart, dorky, but like not hopelessly so friends uh who are at the top of their high school seemingly um and it's the last day of high school as we open they're driving to school on the very last day yes they seem to have this like like secret friendship language where they kind of move around in weird ways and spend like 40 minutes getting into the car doing a little dance like i I don't quite know how to quite to describe it that's a great opening for the two friends i just have to say because it lays down one of my favorite things about this movie which is the kind of 
performative nature of their friendship for each other. You know, there's a there, there's a way that the two of them are always showing each other, also with their their compliment off kind of yeah. exchanges that we can yes. get to. But they're sort of always showing each other how much they love each other and how important their friendship is. And so to have them do that as their very first introduction to the viewer gives you a real sense of their past together without us having to have some backstory of here's a flashback of when they were 10 or something like that. Um, we should say also that Molly is played by Beanie Feldstein, who you might know from Lady Bird as the best friend of the Saoirse Ronan character in that movie. And uh, and Amy is played by Caitlin Deaver. Yeah, I wanted to give you the names because I've heard this. The pronunciation thing is a little bit weird. And so we're setting the record straight. Katie Deaver. I, Caitlin Deaver, yes. Caitlin At Deaver. least that's how Beanie said it in a video interview. <laughs> so I'm assuming that she knows, especially because apparently Olivia Wilde, the director, had the two girls, young women, live together, room together as part of the rehearsal process for this movie, which is an unusual rehearsal process and makes you understand why they seem to have this long-running connection that you sort of instantly feel in the movie. Yeah. It reminds me, I remember, wasn't it Alfonso Cuaron who used to make kids in his movies like spend way too much time and write essays about how much they like each other? Like, didn't he do that with the <laughs> Harry Potter kids or something? Oh, really? Maybe that's why his Harry Potter movie is, is by far the best. He uh, directed kids in, in Secret Garden, too. Maybe right. he, oh, I'm sorry, Little Princess. I wonder if he had yeah, them yeah. get to know each other as well. Huh. Mike Lee is another director. The English socialist is another director <laughs> who does this. I don't know if he has people literally live together, but he has long rehearsal processes where they all just sort of, you know, come to a house in the country and talk through the script together. And I think that there was a lot of improvisation in this movie as well. Feldstein yeah. has said that she contributed... I, one line I know she said she contributed is early on in the movie when uh, her friend Amy, who's gay, and that's established early in the movie that she came out two years ago, that she tells her, your first crush ever was the little white cat and the Aristocats. And apparently <laughs> Beanie Feldstein made that line up on the spot and Caitlin Deaver laughed so hard that they had to keep retaking it over <laughs> and over again. That's so good. I loved that line because we recently uh, had an episode on Outward, which is the LGBTQ podcast that I co-host here at Slate, where we talked about our so-called roots of our queer identity. And for a lot of people, cartoon characters were sort of their first foray into, you know, thinking uh, a same gender person was super attractive. So there were little moments like that, that immediately at the beginning of the film made me feel like, oh, you know, they're taking, they, they have a little bit of insight into what it's like to actually be queer. And this isn't just going to be some sort of gimmick to make this movie stand out from every other high school movie there is out there. And the intimacy between the two female characters, too, where it's, you know, it's sort of like a, I've heard it called like a platonic romantic relationship, these kinds of um, very, very close female friendships that never really cross the line into anything sexual, but is like extraordinarily intimate. That was one of the most fun parts of the film for me, like right from the very start. Well, that becomes a joke in the movie as well, in that Amy's parents are convinced that they are having a romantic relationship <laughs> because they know their daughter's gay and they know she hangs out with another girl all the time. So they jump to that conclusion and the two girls kind of play on that and manipulate the parents a bit into letting them um, go out for a wild night together on the pretext that they're spending the night. Yeah, that was great. There's so many like lovely, like it seems like the kids are largely unknowns. Like some of them, like you said, there's they have past credits, there's Lady Bird. Um, but um, a lot of the kids I feel like are sort of plucked out of the ether and are quite distinctive and all have big parts, but the parents are played by people like Lisa Kudrow. And who plays the father again? Will Forte. Yeah, that's right, Will Forte. And then um, Sudeikis being the spouse of Olivia Wilde is also in the, Jason Sudeikis is in the movie as a principal in Jessica the school. Jessica Williams. 
Jessica Williams. It's just a, a delightful adult cast of like deep ventures, I think. I mean, you just you know that Olivia Wilde has a very nice Rolodex of friends who are willing to come and appear in her, her debut. Yes. <laughs> um, and one note, too, about the casting. And I think you're really right that there are a lot of great unknown faces, especially in the crowd at school, the, the, the whole cast of, of high school kids. Uh, the casting director for this movie was Allison Jones, who also cast Superbad. And she cast The Office, The American Office. Mm. And she cast um, Freaks and Geeks, which I thought was really notable, oh, particularly wow. given, you know, what a pool of young, at the time, unknown talent that was. But let's talk about the school. When they get to the school after their little happy-to-see-you dance, what what is the, um, the school like that they're arriving at? And this is where I start to have some questions about the texture of this movie, like the verisimilitude of the world that they're going into. Yeah. So it's the last day of school, and what kind of space is their school? It, this is very much in the realm of like the high school I wish I had but doesn't actually exist kind of movie where you know kids are skateboarding down the steps everyone's like throwing paper airplanes and silly string and confetti Um, and it seems like there are very specific uh, like clicks in play as there would be at any high school there's the theater kids and sort of the hot jocks and their um, you know uh, counterparts like the hot girl jocks or whatever, the stoner kids, the skateboarders, the nerds, but everyone kind of gets along. Like, it it seemed to me like there would be a little bit more space between, or that the dorks, like the, you know, Molly and Amy characters would be a little bit less self-assured and a little bit less cool than they were. Did you guys get that sense at all? Yeah, I kind of wondered, and I hate to say this about such a sweet, buoyant movie, as I was just saying, but, like, where's the cruelty, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, they're sort of outcasts, Molly and Amy, and I don't want to see them suffer by any means, but it's there's not really a sense that there's a super deep bottom to their <laughs> to their um, outcast status at school. Everybody more or less seems to be pretty tolerant and accepting and sweet and good-looking. And I mean, the, a huge question that popped to mind for me almost immediately is, is this a private school or a public school? And that's never established mm-hmm. at all. Yeah, that gets at what animates the movie's like central sort of conflict, um, which is that at some point... Um, so Molly is going to Yale the following year. I didn't quite ga- gather. Where is Amy going? Oh, Columbia. Columbia. After, Although she's, after, yeah, her, after her, her gap, gap time, gap year, spoiler. <laughs> uh, I guess this is a special. Um, <laughs> but what we, we kind of find out is that at, at some point there is a little bit of meanness. And somebody says something about how Molly... I don't know. They're having a crude conversation about how bettable she is or something along those lines. And she overhears it and she claps back at them by saying something along the lines of, yeah, well, I'm going to Yale and you guys are going to peek here or something. And they say, no, we're going to Yale, too. And it seems like every kid is either going to Yale or a very, very good school. Yeah. And that's what animates them to like kind of like act out and cut loose, which becomes like sort of what the thread that um, the movie follows. But it says a lot about the high school, too. It seems like every single one of these kids is going to an incredibly good school and or going to, like, create a nonprofit in Africa for a year. Uh, yeah, I wanted to know the, the private versus public distinction. And also, I mean, given, as you say, that the entire action of the movie, the idea that the two girls decide to go out and have this wild rager party night because they discover that everybody got into a great school is why. Why did everyone, even even at a, at a sort of top flight private school, there would still be some distinction, right, between the kids who studied hard and the kids who didn't. I kept expe- expecting maybe Jessica Williams as the teacher or Jason Sudeikis <laughs> as the principal to pop up and say, you know, I don't know, give us some sort of explainer about why whether you are a party all night jock or a super brain, you would get the same grades and have the same results at the school. It's bizarre. I guess the dumb jock does say that he's going to Georgetown, which is not exactly like 
the most impossible to get into school. <laughs> like that, but that's about, you. I, I know, Both I know. Danielle as as, and I went to Georgetown. I know that. I went to, look, I went to, I went to the University of Michigan. I'm not saying that I'm not being an elitist here. All I'm saying is, is that like the movie, like that's the movie's version of like going to an also ran school. Like it's like, that is like <laughs> that, the low, that's, that's low the as gritty. it goes. <laughs> <laughs> the gritty yeah. reality. That kid was really disappointed, I guess. Yeah, I like right from the very beginning, this movie, I expected it to hit me kind of harder to feel like brutally dragged by it because there was a part of me that felt like I identified with Molly and Amy, even though I didn't go to Yale. I went to, you know, scummy Georgetown. But um, (laughs) just the, the idea of like, I couldn't wait to get out of high school. I had this big fancy future planned. I thought I was so much better than all these other kids who didn't care about learning, only cared about partying, who like weren't interested in intellectual pursuits and bettering themselves in the world and only cared about drinking and were probably going to stay in New Hampshire for the rest of their lives. Um, and in fact, when she talks about, you know, Molly is the class president and she talks about She's the one who does all the real work. Her vice president is this hot guy, Nick, who, you know, is very popular, but a total doofus, can't really perform the duties of the office. Uh, That's almost the exact, uh, like, a mirror image of what happened at my high school where the, um, the class officers were, like, maybe one person who actually had their shit together. And then everyone else were just very popular jocks who were so incompetent at their jobs that we didn't even have a five-year high school reunion because they were supposed to be the ones planning it and they couldn't bring themselves to actually get it together in time. Um, So right from that moment, I was like, oh, dang, uh, I'm about to find myself dragged by this movie. And I wasn't actually (laughs) dragged as as hard as I thought I was going to be. But um, like that initial sentiment where she is feeling like, like at the very end of high school where you think like all this angst I might have felt about not being cool or not partying enough is about to be rewarded by a fancy future. Like the the anger and self-doubt that she felt when she realized everyone else was going to a good school too and she actually could have been having fun and doing her homework uh, felt very real to me. And that was sort of where, um, as you put it, Dana, the verisimilitude ended because I actually don't think that would have happened at a high school like that. Yeah, my first response when I started hearing that everybody got into some amazing school was, this must be a really gut high school they're going to, you know, like it must be (laughs) offering incredibly easy classes if it doesn't matter whether you're, you know, which end of the studying spectrum you fall on. But at any rate, that discovery sparks both of them, particularly Beanie Feldstein's character, Molly. She's the more incensed about it. In fact, Amy seems perfectly fine with that revelation. But it makes Molly decide that they have to find the location of Nick's party, Nick being the, uh, the, the, the jock, jock. yeah, the, and, the, and the second officer, vice president or whatever of right. the class, uh, who's throwing a big party that night for the night before graduation. And we discover pretty far into the movie that Molly has a crush on him, right? I mean, it's, it's a good ways into their journey. Yeah, sort of like the sage, manic pixie, like 2.0 woman who like follows <laughs> them throughout the parties. I forget the character's name. Do you remember? Gigi. Gigi. Gigi, great name. <laughs> Played by Billy Lord. Did you guys know who Billy Lord is? I actually, no. she looks so familiar. She is Carrie Fisher's daughter. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and therefore oh, Debbie Reynolds' wow. granddaughter. She's the third generation of, of acting 
fisher women. Oh wow, that makes it sort of poignant. Then she goes to this movie as sort of like a like a druggy sage who like is constantly present everywhere. That's sort of a weird level to think about it on. But uh, she basically at one point in the movie reveals that Molly. She just tells Molly she has a crush on it, which also speaks to my like experience. Like I definitely had friends who would just come to me and be like, "I know how you feel about that person," and then all of a sudden I'd be like, "Oh, that's true," and that happens oh, to they Molly. They were right. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, almost wow. always. It, well, people can tell. And they can tell. And so we find out that Molly has a crush on this Nick character. She also seems to be friends with him. So one of my foundational questions with this movie was like, why doesn't she just text him and ask him where his house is? Well, the, especially because <laughs> the high school, as we said before, is, is establishes this gray zone where there's supposedly a hierarchy, but the hierarchy doesn't seem that exclusionary. It, and a, and right. a huge part of the quest, I would say the first third of the movie is just about them trying to find the address to Nick's house, right? They end up going to two of the wrong parties on the way just trying to get this address. That's what I mean. It's not and that hard. It's like... <laughs> Two-thirds of the movie is them trying to find the address. <laughs> and yet party. there's actually a plot hole there because later the next day, and now we're skipping far ahead, but when Molly wakes up the next morning and, uh, and, and looks at her phone, the first thing she sees is this series of texts from everyone in the class talking about the stuff that happened the night before with Amy that she missed. <laughs> so did she just collect all those addresses at the party? Why did she not have them before? Yeah, it seems absurd. But I guess it's sort of... It's a little beside the point. Like, the journey in this movie is kind of the point. And so then the first party that they hit up... I'm not skipping anything important, am I? Well, we meet the parents. We meet Amy's parents. And here's a quick question mm-hmm. I have for you guys about the entire movie. Why don't we ever meet Molly's parents? I mean, isn't it a I bit of an imbalance? If anything, she's the main character. I wasn't even sure why she didn't just... Why Olivia Wilde didn't just assign those two parents, played by Lisa Kudrow and Will Forte... To Molly. I mean, it's just rather odd that one person gets a backstory and a house and parents that you know about, and the other really just gets, we get a tiny glimpse of her room. Otherwise, we never see anything about the interior of her home or her life. That's true. I, I Since the movie does have four writers and is kind, does have kind of a sketch, shaggy feel to it, I would not be surprised if at some point those people were part of the script and they were just deemed not necessary, and the other parents established that they're like... They have parents and that they're going out and they had to tell their parents they're going out. And then the rest of it was the second set wasn't necessary. Maybe? Yeah, I guess so. It just gives a strange lack of parallelism to the movie. Yeah. Olivia Wilde said at Sundance that there was a three hour cut of this movie that she had a hard time cutting down. I wouldn't want it to be three hours long, oh, no. <laughs> but I could have stood I could have stood 15 to 20 more minutes of a little bit more backstory and development for, for those characters, I think. Yeah, I did note that she lived in um, a small apartment building where... The, it was sort of the doors opened to the outside, almost like a motel. So it was my uh, interpretation that she was possibly a bit more working class than some of her other classmates, which might have also played into her desire to you know, work extra hard and prove herself and, and her pride in getting into Yale. That would have been a nice thing to establish, though, because if there's one thing that's absent from this movie, I mean, as we'll get into, there is some diversity on the sexual orientation front, but there's not much racial diversity, and there's definitely no talk about class or money or economic situations at all. And I'm not saying it's got to be some sort of gritty study of, you know, whatever, coal miners. I mean, it can be about a middle-class high school, and that's fine, but there's not much acknowledgement of that fact or what that means about these characters' lives. Except for the one kid who's very rich and kind of tries to buy everyone's friendship. Yeah, and that's really bizarre, too, because a kid like that that's that rich where he can run out a yacht, which we're getting to momentarily, that, I'm sorry, but like at big public high schools, that's just not a thing. Um, like as a product of like a lower middle class high school, like this is, I, which I, by the look of it and the, like the nature of the principals and the teachers, I would say this is what this was supposed to be, although it's hard to say you're right, there's not a lot of markers, that part of it doesn't ring true at all. 
But to me, it's like a similar, this movie gets compared constantly to Superbad, partly, partly because it's the people who made that movie are creatively involved in this in some ways. And I think that that just kind of all disappears to me at a certain point with these movies. You go more with the types and the formula and don't think about that part of it as much. And that's kind of what I did here. So the two girls convince Amy's parents that they're going to go out spend the night together. What they're really going to do is go in search of this Nick-hosted rager. I think it's actually at his aunt's house, and it's an unsupervised teen party, so that's the one they want to get to. Um, There's a cute scene where they put on outfits. They go into somebody's closet, I forget which girl's closet, and come out having accidentally chosen almost exactly matching outfits, again, establishing their kind of soulmate kinship together. And that's when we first see their compliment showdown that they occasionally get into with each other, like, you're blinding me, you're so beautiful, I can't take it, and uh, keep on topping each other with compliments. And then they head out to the first party, which ends out to be the wrong party, not the one they were trying to get to. Christina, do you want to describe party number one? Yeah. So they get they realize they don't have the address to Nick's party. And so they're like, you know, there's really only one person who would both pick up a phone call from us and would know the address to the party because apparently they're so alienated from, you know, anyone, any of the partying uh, kids at their high school. So they call this guy Jared, who is incredibly rich. Uh, He's got like a fake tan, a sideways baseball hat, a car, you know, like a vintage car painted with flames that has a vanity plate that says fuck boy. Um, Just a really insufferable, annoying character who is desperate to be liked and is constantly throwing money around hoping to buy people's friendship. But um, it doesn't seem to be working too well for him. So they call him. He shows up ready to drive them to a party, the party. And as soon as he turns on the ignition, a Sheryl Sandberg lean in audiobook begins to play. And he's like, oh, you know, I like to listen to audiobooks by strong women before I go to a party just to remind myself of the respect that women deserve, which is sort of one of the things that I both liked, but then eventually started to annoy me about this film was that all the men in it seemed to be really nice and really good guys. Like every opportunity for somebody to do to like, uh, you know, have a bad gender based interaction with them turns into like the the dude actually being aggressively nice and sweet and accommodating. Um, so this guy, Jared, brings them to not the party they thought they were going to, but the party that he threw, which no one is at. On his yacht that he's rented out, he has, you know, a whole staff of people serving past canapes. Uh, There's probably like a photo booth, uh, (laughs) fireworks ready to go off. And of course, his best friend, Gigi, this like druggy little fairy character is there and nobody else. Yes. I will say that I I kind of got the impression that the whole lean in tape thing was like a joke and that was like his game to get laid. Was that not the oh, case really? of what was happening? I didn't think that he I was sincerely he was just... listening to it. But he, but he was embarrassed that it came on. I mean, I think it's one of those huh. moments where the movie's tone, which we can get into, we'll get into this with the animated sequence, I'm sure, but the movie's tone yeah. is kind of all over the place in ways that are sometimes fun because it makes it kind of a patchwork of different styles, but in ways that sometimes make the characters not make sense. So you don't know, for example, whether... The character of Jared is meant to be, I mean, ultimately, I guess he's kind of lovable. As Christina was saying, everybody in the movie is ultimately accorded some kind of lovability. Yes. But, you know, is he a player or not? Does he or is he at least a wannabe player? You know, how, how much of his shtick is is genuine? We never really know. And we're not really given the the 
information to find out. And uh, and I ended up finding that somewhat frustrating as well. Um, but the tonal the tonal variance gets even more dramatic later on as the, as the party night goes on. How do they get out of the party at Jared's? I can't remember. They sort of stay long enough to be polite. But they after- run away screaming, right? Because I think that um, drug fairy jumps into the ocean at one point. It's on like a we mentioned yeah. it's on like a yacht, right? And then they said, but she, a docked yacht, they a never, docked yacht. Yeah. They never make it out to sea, unfortunately. But uh, I think they just like literally run away and call lift. They keep calling lifts. It's a recurring theme in the movie. I was wondering if lifted product placement. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> oh, it's so yeah. good on them. And yeah, no. And then I think that they um, they have collected an address from another classmate who is this sort of like borderline fascist gay theater kid and they go to what they think is the real party but in fact it is a costume party thrown by said borderline fascist gay theater kids. And it's one of those clue game style <laughs> murder mystery parties which is really kind of I think funnily parodied and they stay at that party yeah. for a brief time and is it at that party that they get dosed with hallucinogens by the they, drug fairy girl? Yeah they got dosed at Jared's party but then it kicks in at the murder mystery party which I, I'd be curious what you thought um, Jeff about their treatment of the gay theater kids. I thought they were overdoing it a bit with those characters. Like, not that gay theater kids aren't, you know, flamboyant and self-serious, but that part felt a little bit too close to the gay caricatures that you'd see in, you know, m- much less progressive high school films of of yore. Yeah, my impression was that it was sort of intended to have a meta layer of exaggeration that like didn't always fully land as that and that they ultimately sort of fit into these stereotypes. I mean, one of those kids was in like Dear Evan Hansen. These are like theater kids who are making fun of theater kids for sure. There's no doubt that that was the intention. Is it going to come off that way to an average viewer? It's hard to say. I didn't love it, um, although I did think they were quite funny at times. That's what I mean about that's a scene where the satire is really extreme, right, where the characters are kind of cartoonish versions. And then even Molly and Amy, they're, they're not cartoonish nerds at all. I mean, something we haven't touched on at all and that I think is empowering and yet unrealistic is that there's never any comment made even at the moment of, of when um, when Molly hears herself being teased that early scene in the bathroom where she's in a stall and she hears the kids teasing her outside there's never anyone making fun of her weight which is great mm-hmm. in a way it's really nice that Beanie Feldstein is a larger sized heroine than you would usually get in a teen comedy and there's not really any negative commentary on that but again it's sort of there's a little bit of a sense that the edges are being sanded off in this movie, you know, that mm-hmm. you can't have anything really cruel or really dark occur. I think that's right. Yeah. It plays out more later when Molly sort of has her moment with um, Nick. I, they, the movie doesn't say it, but it's sort of implied that there is like a, which she even has when she has romantic connections. I sort of assume that that's why that went south, but I, the movie doesn't ever say that that's the case. It's yeah. sort of like in the background. Yeah, that's there, there's we'll get there, but yeah, that's a very sanded off moment what, that happens between them at the end. And I yeah. guess in a way you could say that you know the real emotional meat of this story is between the two girls, and it's about female friendship, and it doesn't really matter that much what um, what Nick thinks or feels about anything. He's just kind of there as a as a pawn in their in their game in some ways. But um, but that was another moment where I felt like I don't know what level of realism to try to take this story with. Um, but let's talk about the animated sequence that happens at Nick's party after they finally get there, driven by Jessica Williams as their teacher, who finally ends up being their fairy godmother who gives them a ride to this party, then weirdly stays at the party, which we'll get into later. Um, but so these these uh, these strawberries that are dosed with some strange hallucinogen who's who seems to only act on your brain for about 45 minutes <laughs> kicks in uh, 
Oh, no, it kicked in at Jared's party. So let's just hop back in time for a minute because I want to talk about that sequence. It's really striking. The moment that the strawberries hit, they turn into Barbie dolls, essentially, right? They turn into these kind of exaggerated female action figures. One is a nurse, I think. Molly is represented <laughs> by this, like, sexy nurse type. And uh, I can't remember what character Amy's Amy's doll is. A farmer, she might just be a, I think. Is she? She's, I mean, I remember her as a naked doll, but I think maybe she just takes off her clothes immediately to check out her, her plastic body. And so there's this brief scene, totally unexpected. The audience went wild for this scene in the screening that I went to because it was just so weird and, and out there, um, where suddenly, unexplainably, we are in a, a Barbie doll stop action, stop motion animation sequence. And, uh, and the two of them climb up laboriously up this um, dresser and stare at themselves in a mirror. And I think the reason this scene is in here, besides just to be a you know the the obligatory silly trippy scene in a teenage party movie, uh, is to say something about the male gaze and the female body and how they experience that. But what exactly? Why why did they become Barbie dolls? In your opinion, I'll start with you, Christina. I am not prepared to answer that. <laughs> I I hated this scene. I generally don't like these sort of uh, over the top like hallucinatory scenes in comedies. I w- randomly was also watching a similar episode of Broad City where um, they are on mushrooms and turn into cartoon characters, which I think is a little bit of a like lazy and unrealistic way to actually explain what it's like to be tripping on uh, psychedelic drugs, which actually could be mined for some really good comedy. Um but yeah, I the this one like they they were very preoccupied with the shapes of their bodies, Barbie bodies, which I found funny for about one moment. Um, and I guess it it ends up bringing them to a point where they can actually be honest with each other about how they feel about their crushes. But it also involved the lesbian character sort of fondling her own breasts and being enamored with her own body, which I found just blatantly offensive. <laughs> Interesting. What about you, Jeffrey? I mean, I think I enjoyed that sequence for its novelty. I agree that it, it had a kind of a one joke and that that joke was over too fast. And my other critique of that sequence would be that nothing like that happened in the movie. I sort of felt that this is going to be the beginning of a breakdown of formal rules. And as we go forward mm. in this movie, you know, anything will be able to happen formally. And, you know, maybe there'll be another animated sequence or there'll be a moment when, you know, I don't know, suddenly we are in black and white in a flashback or something. And there were no more formal experiments like that at all. So it was a little bit like conventional movie, crazy moment, conventional movie yeah there was that one dance sequence when they get they finally get to nick's party where it sort of it turns into a dream sequence where molly and nick oh, dance yeah, with you're each right. other you're right but, th- but everything else was oh, very yeah. like realist and nothing special happening I had more with the Barbie thing. I I don't know what to make of it either. I don't think anybody does. I talked about this with people I saw the movie with after. I think there's obviously some sort of like feminist uh, excavation going on around Barbie dolls and like being able to like embrace Barbies, even though they're like obviously like bad for the cause, like TM kind of thing. But I beyond that, I really couldn't tell you. It makes <laughs> me wonder, too, Christina, what you were saying about, you know, the kind of objectionable self-caressing of the queer girl <laughs> there the, the writers for this movie it was was four women all women but i have no idea i haven't dug deep enough to know whether any of them are gay women or not um but yeah if it was an all straight olivia wilde obviously is straight or at least she's married to a man and has children with him so i don't know to what extent there are queer voices shaping this movie in spite of the fact that there's a very prominent you know that the co-star of it is is a gay character and that's a big part of her story arc yeah, I IMDb yeah. this too and couldn't immediately tell. I guess it shouldn't matter. What matters is what's in the movie, but 
I honestly actually quickly, I like kind of thought that Olivia Wilde was bi. And the reason I think She's I thought. played a ton of bi characters. Well, that's why. Because in the OC, which I would characters. hope that, I hope that a lot of listeners. Have you watched the OC, Dana? Oh, yeah. I've seen the first uh, season, okay. a couple seasons anyway. Well, at one point, Olivia Wilde, one of her first TV roles. And Christina, I was just assuming you've seen it. Oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> I've seen that. Yes, I have. So at one point and Olivia in House. She also plays a bi woman in house. Oh yeah. Yeah. So on the OC she shows up in one season and just all of a sudden Marissa's like into women and they like make out in a really hilariously <laughs> gratuitous way that I like loved when I was whatever, nineteen. Uh I thought it was funny. So that's why I always just assumed that she was queer, but I guess not. Again, I don't think it um, really matters. I mean, she but... could be. She's never like come out. Um but I always tend to assume that somebody who makes a habit of playing queer characters has a little has the potential in them even if you know they're not actually queer but I definitely think that I am more critical of the portrayal of queer characters in movies than like any other straight person or maybe any gay man would feel like I feel very protective over um, like young queer women in movies and how they're portrayed and so the idea that like a queer woman would be obsessed with touching her own breasts for the moments that she's on LSD or whatever they took. Like, you know, gay people are always, there's like a little joke, like, you know, homosexuality is just narcissism. Um, And I don't, I don't know how realistic that is. I'm happy to field uh, comments from queer women who want to prove me wrong and 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 have had moments like that. But um, I, I thought that was a little bit of a cheap joke and actually spoke to a, a larger critique I would have of the movie, which is that I feel like there's a trend of these of movies that are really trying to push female comedy um, a step further where they just sort of um, seem to paste like lewd what I would consider male bodily humor onto women's bodies. So um, like Molly in the film is constantly making jokes about, oh, there's going to be so many women up your vagina at Columbia or like go flick that bean, like just talking about <laughs> right. queer sex in a really lewd way. Maybe I'm maybe I'm too prude for this movie, but like in my experience, that's not the way that women talk about each other's bodies or having sex with each other. Um and like it just felt like a little bit of a cheap joke that everyone could feel good about laughing about because it's not homophobic, but it's also not necessarily true to life. Yeah, I've heard a critique that's not exactly what you're articulating, but close. Like I remember when Mike and Dave get wedding dates, that like kind of forgettable comedy came out and it was like, I think, I forget, it was Anna Kendrick and somebody else were in that movie and it was very body. And I remember Manola Dargis, um, who's the critic for The Times, just being like, the way to make raunchy comedies about women is not to have them act like fucking men. Like, that's not. Yeah. <laughs> and you get a little bit of that yeah. in this movie, although not to that degree. It's yeah. not fratty, per se, but... I mean, the super bad comparison, in addition to being apt, as you said, because of, you know, the sharing some, some uh, obviously, a cast member who's a, a sibling of one of the co-stars and the same exact structure of the two teens out on the last party night or whatever. Um, but the similarity also extends, I think, to just trying to be as raunchy as possible, you know, yes. and, and not always in a way that's particularly attentive to how these two characters would be raunchy with each other right. yeah i agree but let's talk about nick's party so now they finally f- found themselves at the destination it must at this point be a million o'clock in the morning because they have also had so <laughs> many detours to the library to try to research the address i don't know why their town's library is open oh, right. at, at midnight or something yeah and also um, to the pizza guy and eventual murderer oh yeah that's a fun little sidebar <laughs> yes. that they uh, and they, they got in a lift getting... with their principal <laughs> Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah, how did they, where did that take them to? I guess that took them to the yacht party, right? 
Uh, I think that took them to their very first. I think it took them stop. from the yacht party to the theater kid party, and then Jessica Williams, their teacher, took them from the theater kid party to Nick's party. That's right. You have better sequential memory <laughs> than I. But so then, when they finally end up at, at Nick's aunt's party, um, let's get into some of the stuff that happens. We haven't even really talked about Amy's crush yet. So they each have a goal at this party, right? They want to tell this longtime crush that they like them, and for for once, try to get a little bit of action before high school is over. Molly's crush, as established, is this job yet strangely sweet um, guy, Nick. And Amy's, you want to take it away, Jeffrey? Yes. So Amy's crush is a sort of, I almost want to give it to Christina because I'm, I'm wondering, I'm kind of hesitating to describe her, but she's kind of, you would maybe use the word quirky. She's like sort of a punk alternative type chick. She's like into skateboarding. Her sexuality is ambiguous. Even her she, name is Ryan. She's got right. this kind mm-hmm. of androgynous name. Yeah, there's some androgyny and Amy isn't sure. It's sort of the classic queer teen comedy thing where like she doesn't know if her crush is gay or not and there's like the way that she tries when she finally runs into her in this party the way she tries to figure it out is by saying I'm going to well wait so where is she actually going Botswana she's going to Botswana but the woman asks her (laughs) if she's going to Uganda and she's like no it's Botswana because I can't go to Uganda because I'm gay would you be afraid of going to Uganda (laughs) (laughs) you have to admit that's a good pickup line no it was was a funny joke that was like one of my favorite lines of the movie and the one of the only times I really laughed out loud alone at the screening that I was at I thought that was so good and I kind of want that to become the new like uh you know do you know bet? Like, that's the kind of thing that people would say it kind of as a joke, like, oh, bet from the L word. And now it's going to be, would you be afraid to visit Uganda? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so anyway, uh, the party, basically the setup of the party is that both of them go and try. They like encourage each other. And there's been a lot of roadblocks along the way that we didn't really mention where they didn't even know if they wanted to keep going and they've been motivating each other and blah, blah, blah. But now at this party, they're really going to clamp down and try to get their crushes. So Molly goes for Nick. And Amy goes for, what's this woman's name? Ryan. Ryan, oh, right, we just said it. For Ryan. And they both have sort of semi-awkward encounters that are mostly sweet and fun, but that you kind of know in both cases are going to hit a wall at some point and be really sad because that's just the way that they go in this movie. I have to in admit that the, the wall that it ends up hitting has a kind of pleasing symmetry to it, which is that the two crushes get together with each other, thus <laughs> <laughs> yeah. breaking two hearts at once. Yes, uh, it is. it is... It worked. Um, and I thought that it could have. This is one case where I, the lack of cruelty and the lack of things going very, very horribly wrong, I was actually grateful for because I was just waiting for like the rug to get pulled out of them in a particularly brutal way. Yeah. I mean, there was a, there was a possibility of, you know, some sort of like threatened sexual assault or some horrible right. drunken thing happening at the party. And that didn't happen. And I, I was kind of grateful for the gentleness of that. I also loved just cinematically the reveal of how um, how Amy finds out that both the two crushes are going to make out with each other instead yeah. of getting with either of them, which is that great underwater shot. I don't know it was just one shot. I guess it's a kind of a sequence in um, in the pool at the house. And I can't remember what song is playing. In general, I love the soundtrack to this movie. Some of it is kind of vintage pop and some of it is, is newer stuff. Mm-hmm. Maybe you might say that it relies a little too heavily on just you know emotional music cues, but I did love that underwater scene of her swimming toward her crush. You know, she sees just the bottom half of Ryan's body and she's swimming toward her and then she realizes that you know she's she's with this guy so not only is she straight but she's already hooked up with somebody yeah i guess that is another semi-formally ambitious moment of this movie Uh, i didn't really think about it as such but it is that was a really fun sequence a, a very long stretch of no dialogue from the moment when amy goes to get in the pool and they everyone sort of 
taking off their clothes, swimming in their underwear in what I would consider like a classic high school teen movie sort of scenario that I've actually never experienced in my own life, but I wish that I would have in high school. Um, so they're all like swimming in their underwear, just like students from all all classes and all cliques just swimming naked together or in their underwear together. And then she sees them making out. She like is cold, gets out of the pool, is like trying not to cry, puts on her clothes, searches the party for Molly, who's waiting for Nick to return, not knowing that Nick is uh, making out in the pool. And it's like almost a minute, I I would say, of just like music and no dialogue. And um, this is where I really think Caitlin Deaver shines because she really had to carry that that switch in the tone of the movie from like oh possibly these two girls are gonna get their crushes to like oh no neither of them are going to and it's happened in kind of a particularly heartbreaking way that was one of my favorite parts of the film yeah caitlin diva really is is great i mean i already Mm -hmm. knew that beanie feldstein was somebody to watch but now i will be looking out for caitlin diva as well she's really fantastic how so how do we get to the part where she actually does make out with a girl i can't remember if they have the fight first the fight is first the fight. Oh, really? Oh, Wait. yeah, you're right. Because then she storms into the bathroom, kind right. of ready to cry. Well, it, let's talk about the fight first. Then. Yeah, because the, the next the the bathroom scene is the one that I am. I believe that we are here to discuss, and I can't wait for to get Christina to start on it. But let's start I've with the fight. I've been hinting at my feelings about it on Slack for a little while now. All right. Uh, anyway, the fight. So um, so Amy gets out. She's miserable. She has this horrible news to tell Molly that both of them are going to be disappointed in their quest for the evening. And she finds Molly waiting sadly by the or actually happily waiting by the, the beer pong table where she thinks Nick is going to return at, at any moment to resume their game of beer pong. But I can't quite remember how it turns into this friendship testing moment that they're screaming at each other. Is it because of the revelation of the, the two getting together? No, this was a, a classic misunderstanding moment or a you know missing information moment where Amy's about to tell Molly and she says Malala, which is their code word for you need to do what I like. This is a crisis. You need to do right. what I'm saying. It's like a safe word almost. Like mm-hmm. we yeah. have to get out of this situation. And but she, for, you know, movie reasons, decides not to just out and say our crushes are making out right now. So instead, she's just saying we need to leave. We need to leave. And then Molly is like, why would you prevent me from making out with my crush? I want to stay. Then she gets into something a little more pointed, saying, you know, I always have to push you to do things. You would never do anything fun or adventurous if it wasn't for me. You're like so meek. And then Amy comes back with, well, you're so bossy. Everything has to be your way all the time. And then she reveals, you know, I haven't told you, but I'm not going to college in the fall. I'm doing a gap year in Botswana helping women make their own tampons. And that's what they <laughs> into a real fight. I mean, essentially, it's what Molly already knew she was doing. It's just that she's doing it for a whole year instead of just the summer, which right. I guess I guess that's a bit of a displacement. But they were already going to colleges in entirely different states. It doesn't seem yeah. like it, it hugely changes their, their it year. It throws off them graduating at the same time, is what she <laughs> says. And I kind of get it. I mean, whatever. They're In the end, they are 17. And like the fight... <laughs> The fight, yeah, the fight itself think, was handled pretty well and emotionally well. And like it was one take, I think, wasn't it? Yeah. And then something mm-hmm. cinematic that happens in the fight that's interesting is that the sound drops out after a few exchanges. And uh, and I don't know if you hear music in the background, but you definitely don't hear their voices. You just see their mouths moving as they get more and more heated. And you start to notice that the kids at the party around them are getting quiet and starting to film them. Yeah. And they've kind of made this, this spectacle of themselves. And so that, again, was something that I think Olivia Wilde is good at, which is using 
sound or the lack of sound to create these moments of emotional intensity. Mm-hmm. But so then as a result, Amy storms away. Does Molly leave the party at that point? Uh, I think she kind of mulls. I don't really know what happens to her. But she definitely does leave it earlier than Amy does because she has to find out later what happened in the rest of that night. Right. Amy, in turn, storms off to the bathroom. And then we get to the scene that, according to Jeffrey, we've, we've convened here to discuss, which is <laughs> oh, the... Oh, did um, you not realize that that was the here to discuss? <laughs> this is what I really want to hear. I want to hear Christina's take on this. Which is the movie's lesbian sex scene. So this girl who we haven't really previously met, except just to maybe brief, briefly see her in the hallway... Um, who Caitlin calls the the official hot girl, this gorgeous young actress who sort of reminded me of like a young Jennifer Garner type, is is smoking in the bathroom, being cool and icy and remote and very bitchy <laughs> to the uncool girl who's just come in. And Christina, you take it from there. How does how do they get from this hostile encounter in the bathroom into this love scene? It's pretty abrupt. They are being sassy to each other and then just, you know, take one step closer to each other and are sort of staring each other down. And then I think I want to say Amy lunges in for the kiss, but that's kind of impossible because the girl she hooks up with is about a foot taller than her. So possibly they both lunge toward each other and just start it uh, making out on the bathroom floor. And it's it's very awkward. I think purposely in kind of an endearing way, like not only is this Amy's first hookup ever, but she's also wearing like a sequined shirt dress that she's borrowed from her teacher who gave her a ride to the party, um, which is very hard to remove. And so it ends up that the girl she's hooking up with is completely naked before Amy has even removed one item of clothing. Um, And then they're hooking up and I'm like, oh, isn't this nice? It's going to be like an awkward yet sweet first lesbian hookup. And then there, there's a, a joke that I feel like has been made in a million bro comedies before where it's like, that's not the hole you think it is. AKA Amy has been anally fingering this girl that instead of, you know, vaginally fingering her and like, LOL, you, you messed up because you're drunk. And I think it's completely unrealistic that anyone who has ever touched a vagina before would mix up a butt <laughs> Including their even own. like wiped their butt before. Right. Well, so- and so, but I told my fiance this and she was like, okay, but it's possible that, and she didn't see Booksmart, but I explained the situation to her because I was incensed when I came home from the screening. <laughs> and she was like, well, Christina, not everybody like explores their own body. And it's possible that Amy actually hasn't like touched a vagina before. And you know what? I remember that when they talk about how she masturbates, she just rubs a stuffed panda on herself. Yeah. So it's a long running gag in the movie, right? That she like is afraid that because she, well, they do mention her hand, but she's afraid because she puts her hand in the, it's, she says my hand's going the opposite direction, so I won't know. The movie makes a big point out of this anatomy confusion. And how inexperienced she is. Yeah, right? they She's watch never porn, even kissed anyone. Right. right. So yeah, that's why the scene, if, I was just wondering. I, wa- I definitely wanted your fact check. And now but I, I felt the same thing, Christina. It's just like, that is so, that's such bro humor. I mean, even a bro wouldn't make that mistake. And I don't think Amy, Amy or Molly are supposed to be drunk. It's never established that they're drinking a ton, right? Well, Amy yeah. is because she vomits. But yeah, but doesn't she vomit because of some gross thing that she... That, I was going to ask that. That's another big question I have about that scene. <laughs> and like, I'm sorry to be so graphic, but why does she throw up? She drinks something weird. It, I, I it, like, it's almost like there's a chewed piece of gum in the cup, but would that really make you throw up? I mean, it's gross. Or did but... she drink the girl's cigarette ash? Maybe. I thought she threw up because she was drunk, but... 
Um, it was probably a combination of drunk, accidentally putting your finger in someone's butt and being really <laughs> embarrassed. Yeah, you probably and don't possibly need to explain drinking someone's cigarette ash. Exactly why one would throw up in that scenario. But I still think it was strangely unestablished because I didn't see it ever being established that those girls got drunk. You know, they're pretty square. They didn't take drugs on purpose. They were really freaked out when they took drugs. I guess maybe they might be tipsy from playing beer pong, et cetera. But I still thought that the barfing to go go down the bro humor lane again, the barfing was a little bit thrown in because you got to have the scene where somebody barfs on somebody else, which is the next thing that happens between Amy and her new hookup. Yes, and that's the point at which it officially goes south. And the the mean girl is sort of sweet about the butt thing, but not about the throwing up <laughs> thing, and like yells at her to get out. And then from there, I just remembered we totally forgot about what happens with Molly. Molly also has a romantic conquest. So we forgot that with Molly, while this is going on, has an encounter with Jared, the guy who listens to uh, Lean In. And that is where her night takes her. Because earlier it sort of hinted that he might have a crush on her or something. And after her disappointment with Nick, that's where she goes because he drives her home. Right. She has her. She has his car. I totally forgot that that happened, but it did. Yeah, I guess that shows the extent to which this, the sex scene kind of looms over the middle of the movie, that, that bathroom <laughs> sex scene. You sort of forget everything that happens in the near vicinity. Uh, the next thing Amy does, though, is it kind of the, um, the action climax or one of the action climaxes of the movie, which is that the cops bust into the party and she sacrifices herself by, I guess, kind of rushing the cops while all the rest of the kids hide out and escape. Yeah, I was hoping that she would um, take some of her, like, political awareness knowledge and employ it as a weapon in that situation. Like, you know, do you have a warrant? Or, like, I don't know what you would say to a a cop in that scenario. But uh, instead, she just goes and gets arrested. It kind of annoyed me because I felt like she's always wearing all these pins with, like, social justice slogans on them and her room is filled with them. But I felt like she didn't, for somebody who seemed so obsessed with being a social justice warrior, she didn't talk about it nearly enough as much as social justice warriors do. But as she's being taken to the into the cop car, isn't she, I mean, I'm, granted it's in a kind of pointless, self-destructive <laughs> 17-year-old way, but isn't she spouting off about, you know, police brutality and how... Oh, yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah, that's true. But it's that scene was funny. I mean, I guess it, it was a classic teen movie moment where you you decide to look cool by getting busted by the cops. Usually there's some sort of twist to it where you don't actually get in trouble. And I suppose this movie has that, too, although in a very kind of dark, uh, unconventional way. <laughs> but that's basically what happens. And then it's the next morning and one of them is at Molly's at home and Amy's in jail. And Molly goes to get Amy when she finds out. It's graduation morning. It's graduation morning, so they need to, like, hustle. And the way that they get them out, uh, do you want to explain that whole thing, Christina? It was, like, very weird, the whole joke. Yeah, so earlier in the film, they had, in their quest to get from one party to another, they just kind of jumped into the car of a pizza delivery man and decided to pretend to hold him up. But instead of asking for money, they were like, drive us to the place where you just delivered these 15 pizzas. Um, and you have and to admit that of, the, the hair mask joke was funny, Christina. It was the fact that they funny. turned their it long hair funny. into these, these robber's masks. 
Yeah, they like put their hair in front of their face and put hair ties in them in such a way that only their eyes were visible. It was genius, actually, and I imagine a lot of kids doing that for Halloween and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, it's a free costume. This is one of those moments where I was like, ugh, is every man in this movie such like a kind, generous soul? Where he was just sort of like scolding them like, have you considered how dangerous it is to get in a car with a strange man? You could be sexually assaulted and stuff. Um, but then that my annoyance was proven to be a little bit presumptive because toward the end of the film, when Molly goes to pick Amy up at the police station or to bail her out of jail or whatever, she sees a wanted poster with that pizza delivery man's face on it. So it turns out he actually was the, you know, Beverly Hills Strangler or whatever he was. <laughs> um, and so they were like, oh, we're going to trade information on this wanted guy because we know who he is and that he delivers pizza for X company. And uh, that's how we're going to get you out of jail in time for graduation. I mean, that's a funny callback, but it also is another moment where the sanded offness of the of the movie's edges becomes almost puzzling. Like, if it's really true that he's this strangler, then wasn't that a complete gift to him? Why did he just continue with his pizza delivery shift and refuse to take them? It's true. Yeah. It's kind of a time-honored joke. I feel like I've seen five versions of that same joke in different things. The one that came to mind, there's a Dawson's Creek episode where this happens. And I just have to believe that Olivia Wilde knows all of these things because she's the same age as us, and that's like her era. But where I, a criminal like a murderer decides not to murder people who have given him a really easy chance to murder them? Yes. Basically, they oh. go up. They, it's an episode that's supposed to be like the scary episode. I, not to get into a tangent here, but if you recall, Dawson's Creek was created by Kevin Williamson, who's the guy who made Scream and all their teen horror movies. And there was an episode where he leaned into that and they the whole time think they're being stalked. But it turns out that the real killer all along was a guy that they went up to for directions in the gas station or something like that. The old Scooby-Doo huh. plot twist. Yes. No, I mean, you're right. It's It's very time honored. But I guess that was the joke. But it is it, it was another mo- moment in the movie. You're like, huh? Like, OK. Right. I mean, there's just a lot of moments in this movie where you, if you think too deeply, (laughs) it doesn't make sense and you lose the momentum. You sort of have to go with the colorful, bubbly silliness of it all and then afterwards ask yourself those questions. So then what I called the action climax of the movie before when Amy rushes the cops is actually even topped by the action climax that comes next when they decide (laughs) that that even though Waze tells them that it'll take 19 minutes to get to school, they must get there in seven minutes for Molly's valedictorian speech. And they continue. And so they're in Jared's car with the flames on it, the fuckboy mobile. (laughs) And they continue to tear through the streets of Los Angeles. I think it's L.A., right? I don't know if they ever establish uh, it. I assume. Seems uh, like it. To their school, to, to Davy Crockett High School. Yeah. Um, the valedictorian speech scene to me was a little bit of a, a, a missed opportunity for a for a, a rousing ending. Didn't you think that the how short her speech was and how sort of content free it was was a bit of a disappointment? Yeah, it was pat. It was one of those moments where like you're supposed to it's supposed to be enough that she throws aside her normal speech, which somebody had been reading off in her absence before and just like. I have to be honest about how I really feel for like 30 seconds is supposed to be enough. And it's like, not really. Even the, even the idea that she would throw away the speech and say a quick thing, but then it should be something really good. I mean, my memory of her speech <laughs> is just sort of something like, it was awesome, y'all. You know, yeah, miss you. I think of this as a little bit of high school catharsis for adults who feel like they need some healing around their high school experiences. Like at the end of the film, you know, all these social boundaries and barriers have fallen away Everyone has has come clean to each other about how they're misunderstood. Like several characters end up confessing to either Molly or Amy that, you know, what everyone thinks they are is not actually who they are. But now everyone understands each other. Um, and, you know, as kind as they all were to each other in the beginning, now they're actually all best friends. 
and yeah, I think it's the fact that her speech was so bland was just because of that fact that, you know, she has nothing left to say to these people other than she's glad they all had one last night of partying together. And and actually, she doesn't regret high school as much as she thought she did yesterday when she realized everyone else had had more fun than she did, which was like it, it felt like the movie was trying to reignite the original conflict, which was, you know, did I waste my high school career by not partying? But over the course of the movie, that instigator for the action had kind of fallen away, and it didn't seem right to try to have that be the thing you wrap up at the end. Right. I mean, it's almost like the final message of the movie is just, a bad party will do wonders for your soul. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I guess it's that it's, it's that, I mean, really, I guess the ultimate message is that whatever happened in high school, that their friendship is the thing that they will take away. But we knew that already at the beginning. So it's not like a lot of ground has been gained. So that's almost the end of the movie, uh, the not-so-rousing valedictorian speech. But after that, there's a little coda that takes place maybe a few days or a few weeks later as Amy is packing for her year-long gap year in Botswana. And uh, let's let's cover a bit what happens there because a couple of plot threads get wrapped up. So the, the hot girl who... Amy accidentally anally fingered shows up <laughs> As one at does. her house. <laughs> yeah, um, and s- has seemingly forgotten how pissed she was, or gotten over the fact that she was very mad that she got vomited on, um, and wants to make sure that Amy has her phone number. Um, so she and Amy have sort of a very adorably awkward conversation outside Amy's house while Molly watches from the window and, you know, in in utter glee that her friend is finally possibly going to have someone to hook up with. Um, and they promise to, I guess, hang out because the hot girl's going backpacking and maybe she'll find herself in Botswana at some point. Again, is it a public school or a private school? Right. <laughs> who Who might or might not go to Botswana backpacking after their senior year? Lucky people. <laughs> I thought that was a relatively sweet moment. Another teen movie cliche, obviously, where two people who like sort of had a near miss earlier in the movie at the end have some sort of like tentative romantic moment. And like it was cute that they did it with these girls. And that was pretty much the extent of my feelings about it. Yeah, it's it's certainly not implied that Molly is going to end up with Jared in any way. Right. Even though she gives him a big kiss after her valedictorian speech. I would hope not. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Don't get me wrong. I, I, I grew to like Jared. I think the actor who played him was charming, even though he did an exaggerated version of it, too. But I, yeah, I think that Molly probably has better things in, on that front coming. And so the last yeah. thing you see of the two girls after they've uh, they've packed up the, the masturbation panda and the rest of Amy's <laughs> things is um, is that Molly drives her to the airport and uh, and they have this kind of faux goodbye in front of the airport where you know they they have a tearful goodbye. Uh, Molly starts to drive away with tears in her eyes as a nostalgic song plays on the soundtrack, and then pop. I believe Amy it was Unchained Melody. Up. Yeah, you're right. It was, <laughs> Which it was a I cover. Really loved. It's great. You're right. It was a woman covering uh, Unchained Melody. I don't know who. Um, but yeah, that's it's great because, again, it sort of marks the, the true romance as their romance, yeah. right? But then Amy pops back up again saying, I don't have to be the first one on the plane. Let's go get some pancakes. And I have to, have to say that I liked the beat that this movie ended on, which was almost like an offbeat. The edit came almost a little bit sooner than you would expect. Mm-hmm. And it gave it gave the movie this kind of forward moving energy, you know, that it didn't feel like it ended on this frozen smile or sort of happy ending, but more that it, it, it ended kind of in medias race. And you had this feeling that their friendship was ongoing and you were just happening to leave it at that moment. Yeah, I loved that button, too. It was sweet yeah. and in keeping with the movie. 
I think the last line is something like, fuck yeah, I do. Yeah. It's like yelled and that's it. About pancakes. <laughs> About pancakes, yes. Important Although context. I will say it, it gave me a little bit of agita because you do not have time to go out for pancakes <laughs> when your flight is probably boarding within the I had hour. the same thought and I thought, I hope they're talking about airport pancakes. <laughs> yeah. You know, they got to go park in the parking lot, maybe grab a quick pancake on the way to the gate. She said something like, I can be the last one on the plane. So maybe there are those freaks who get there four hours early instead of two for international flights. <laughs> I think that that's totally possible. I'll, I'll just choose to believe that in order to preserve my enjoyment of the end of the movie. <laughs> the last thing I'm going to say is that one of the reasons I walked out of this movie with a bounce in my step is that the credit sequence is great. It's absolutely yes. great. It calls back this earlier scene, which we haven't talked about, but which falls under the category of these uh, buoyant musical interludes that I was talking about. I've said buoyant about five times in this podcast, <laughs> and it's in my review. I'm sorry. Um, but that earlier scene was this slow motion moment with the silly string in the hallway, right? Kind of celebrating the last oh, day of right. senior year. I forgot and, about that. And one of the things that scene. happened in that scene is that somebody fills a bunch of condoms up with water, makes water balloons out of them, and, and throws water balloons at people in the hallway. So the credit sequence is just a callback to that, where you see every one of the major characters. I always like a credit sequence that identifies the actor and the character and shows the person at the same time. It's just mm-hmm. a good way to learn new actors' names. And I this agree. credit sequence does that. And as you see each face with the actor's name, you see them getting in slow motion bombed with a condom water balloon. And it's just a sweet, funny, bouncy ending that left me with a a nice feeling about the movie. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, it also made me uh, think of it as a film that probably was a lot of fun to make. And um, the fact that you said, Dana, that uh, Beanie Feldstein and Caitlin Deaver, you know, lived together during the, the filming of the movie. And I think all of the characters really did have good and believable chemistry with each other. And yeah, the the end of it made it seem like they were all actually friends and actually having fun. And, you know, I always like a film that seems like it was fun to make and not like a chore, especially when it's a fun movie about friendship. Yeah, it makes the movie into a real ensemble piece. You know, there's kind of a sense, even if even though, as we said, the, the high school is not very sociologically believable, it's kind of emotionally believable at the end that these kids all knew each other. It's, it's playful. So, yes, we've now reached all the way <laughs> onto the credit sequence itself, uh, the end of Booksmart. Do you guys have any final thoughts about either Olivia Wilde's future as a director or, you know, the future of these actors or the future of teen girl sex comedies? Uh, I think I think that Olivia Wilde seems like a fine director. Like I said, I do think this movie is shaggy and has a lot of ideas in it that are kind of like thrown together in a way that's not totally cohesive. But I think that it clearly shows a lot of promise, lots of energy. Just go with actors seemingly. So I'm excited to see what she does. The question, lingering question I had is that where this movie is going to fit in in the canon of like not only coming of age, but in particular, um, like queer coming of age movies, even a movie that's kind of like not that great, like Love, Simon is already sort of a new classic for young gay men in particular, just because it felt like a milestone. And for a movie like this, because it does so much to make it to make the fact that she's a lesbian sort of mundane and routine and just part of the character as opposed to like, this is a moment. um, I'm wondering where this movie is going to fit in. Yeah, I did like the fact that, you know, for as much as I was sort of rolling my eyes at uh, the, the the niceness of the movie, I did like that nobody was really forced to confront homophobia uh, because it left a lot of room for uh, Amy to be a real person who has a lot of things happening in her life and a lot of concerns and a crush that, you know, she's afraid to approach, not because she's afraid of being hate-crimed, but just because she's a little bit awkward and isn't sure if the person is gay. Because as she says, gender performance is not the same as sexual orientation. And I love thinking about, you know, as corny as it is, like this being somebody's high school movie, 
because so many other high school movies are like have the gay character as sort of the either a, a sort of tragic character or just a funny side character. And, you know, I I think I have the privilege of having small gripes with this one, but that it's it was a really compelling character, the character of Amy. Uh, and, you know, I wish the sex scene was better. But <laughs> I, for people who do see it, I think it could especially for people who see it and are in a situation where they're not dealing with homophobia on a daily basis, this will be, if uh, if not accurate, at least like aspirational and fun reflection of some of the ways that they see their own lives. Yeah. And I mean, of course, we're talking about it as people who grew up in a different generation when, you know, th- there was maybe less of a chance that such a thing could happen either in a high school or in a movie, you know? So I right. just, I'm, I would be curious to interview a bunch of 17-year-old high school seniors about how the the lesbian story in this movie strikes them. I have a feeling that whether or not it seemed realistic to most of them, it would seem, as you say, aspirational, identifiable, and, and cute, you know, which is an important yeah. thing to be if you're a romance in a teen movie. All right. Thanks so much for coming in to discuss Booksmart with me, Jeffrey and Christina. Thank you, Dana. Thank you. And uh, if there's a sequel or any other movie you want to discuss, I hope you'll be back. And thanks to all of you for listening. You can subscribe to the Slate Spoiler Special podcast feed. And if you like our show, you can rate us and review us in the Apple Podcast Store or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have suggestions for movies or TV shows to spoil or any other feedback you'd like to share, you can send it to spoilers at slate.com. Our producer is Danielle Hewitt, and our engineer is Merritt Jacob. Thanks, and we'll talk to you soon.